the fall air was cool and crisp, cold enough that the thick jacket of my uniform was a welcome warmth rather than an encumbrance. The moon was full and bright, brighter than any street lamp. I could see every inch of the grounds outside the White Tower as clear as day as I walked my rounds. Maybe that's when I should have realized something was off. You can never see a clear full moon over London town at night, not through all the cloud and smog. Maybe if the light had been dimmer, the clouds had been thicker, the fog had rolled in. Well, maybe I could convince myself I hadn't seen what I did. But I swear I know what I saw. I wish I hadn't. I was walking my rounds through the tower courtyard, doing my best to keep alert. And that's when I saw it. There, at the door of the White Tower. At first, I thought maybe it was a trick of the moonlight. But the moon is directly overhead. Nothing casts a shadow. Then, I thought it could be an animal forging for food. But that couldn't be it either. The shape was too tall. Even though I remember my training, my body still tensed up. I felt a bright flash of adrenaline as I gripped my rifle just a bit tighter. I called out to the figure, asking for identification. I strained my ears for a response and heard nothing but the wind. It was still too far away to make out the features, but as I stepped forward, I saw the shape of a woman's dress. It was a proper dress, too, long and dark, an ancient ball gown. I called out again, and this time, the figure turned. She was floating rather than walking. I couldn't see her feet move, but she was headed right toward me. She was 30 yards away, then 20, then 10. Close enough now that I should have been able to see her face. But I couldn't. And I couldn't hear her feet crunching the leaves on the ground as she approached. At least I couldn't hear it over the beating of my own heart in my ears. She was close now. Where her face should have been, there was nothing. Just a black hole and a bloody stump of a neck. I could see her neck now in the moonlight, still trickling thick, blackish blood. Her dress wasn't just black. It was stained with blood. My stomach roiled. I always thought I was a strong man, but I felt like a terrified child when I looked at this, this thing. And yet, I couldn't turn away. As she closed in, I felt a new emotion wash over me, drowning out the fear. The animal part of my brain kicked in, telling me, this thing is unnatural. It must be destroyed. Kill it. Destroy it. Now! I plunged my blade through its heart, or at least where its heart should be. But when my bayonet should have collided with the figure, it greeted nothing but empty air. A jolt, like electricity, spread up through my bayonet, filling my veins with fire as it passed through my body. I screamed, dropping my bayonet in agony. And that's when the figure made its final move towards me, 
No, not towards me. Through me. The last thing I saw before I passed out was the bloody hole where her head should have been. Blood. And then blackness. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every other Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to what might be one of England's most haunted places. The London Tower's walls are rich with not only the history of England and its rulers, but also imprisonment, murder, torture, and other unspeakable acts. We'll be venturing within those walls to see the sordid acts that built its reputation and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like the show, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems easy, but it really helps the show keep going. With her head choked underneath her arm, she walks a bloody tower. With her head choked underneath her arm at the midnight hour. With her head choked The Tower of London might be England's most notorious haunted hotspot. Books, plays, movies, and even songs have been written about the many ghosts rumored to walk about its halls around the stroke of midnight. But that doesn't stop it from being a popular tourist destination. In fact, the Tower's bloody history is a big selling point for a certain type of tourist. You could say that the ghosts of the London Tower enjoy their own special kind of celebrity. After all, many of the more famous specters, like Anne Boleyn, Henry VI, and Lady Jane Grey, were royalty in their day. Why wouldn't that notoriety follow them to the afterlife? Traveling thrill-seekers are just as excited to catch a glimpse of a pale specter or a headless figure in their vacation photos as they are to snap a photo of the crown jewels. So what exactly led to the Tower of London's notoriety as a haven for the restless undead? Well, the story of its construction starts all the way back in 1066. William the Conqueror, King of the Normans, had been living up to his moniker. He'd set his sights on conquering England, and once he defeated the Anglo-Saxons who lived there, cemented his rule in 1066. Men who fought for power understand how quickly it can be taken away, and William was no exception. England was his, for him and his descendants to rule. He needed a symbol, a show of just how strong he was, and more practically, to set up a plan of defense in case angry Anglo-Saxons came after him. To validate his rule, William made plans for a massive wooden fortress. It would be so well defended, so formidable, so ostentatiously huge, 
that no rebellion would dare try to breach its walls and take back its rightfully conquered land. The structure became known as the White Tower, the central structure inside the Tower of London. Originally, the White Tower was as much a fortress as it was a palace. Since its looks were as impressive as its defenses, it was the perfect place to keep the royal family secure from any potential rebellion or attack from enemy forces, while keeping them in the lap of luxury. William the Conqueror's son, William Rufus, continued his father's legacy by improving the tower. He rebuilt the wooden tower with stone and created layers of defensive walls, gates, garrisons, moats, and towers around its courtyard. Of course, this was a rather expensive project, and when Rufus's son, King Henry, got stuck with the bill, he needed to take his anger out on someone. King Henry looked no farther than his father's chief financial officer, Ranulf Flambard. Flambard would be the scapegoat for the extravagance of the tower, but as a nobleman, he couldn't be jailed like a commoner. So King Henry locked Flambard in the tower's dreaded keep. Prisoners quickly filled the tower. New cells were built to house them, expanding the grounds even further. An armory was also built, and the stockpile of weapons quickly grew. Although the tower was still used as a royal home and a meeting place for kings and their advisors, the structure's purpose became increasingly sinister. And then the Tudors came along. During their reign, beginning in 1485 and ending at the turn of the 17th century, the Tudor family oversaw the height of London Tower's use as a prison and as a torture chamber. Owing much to King Henry VIII's break with the Catholic Church, the 1500s were a time of great religious upheaval in England, and many people who had been labeled as heretics were taken to the tower and interrogated about their co-conspirators, plans, and safe houses. And when they wouldn't give up that information freely, well... This time period saw some truly grisly innovations in torture. The rack, the scavenger's daughter, the iron chair, thumb screws, and rat torture were all terrifyingly common inside the dark walls of the Tower of London. This is the sort of treatment that a prisoner of low birth would expect when they arrived at the Tower of London during the Tudor reign. But a noble, a person with royal blood, couldn't possibly be treated to the same horrific fate. Their marginally more humane treatment, and the one most commonly associated with the Tower of London today, was death by beheading. King Henry VIII is perhaps most widely remembered today for the six women he married and then subsequently got rid of through annulments or executions when they failed to provide him with a male heir. The most famous of these wives, and the one visitors to the London Tower most often claim to see, is Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. Although Anne did give birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, she suffered three miscarriages and didn't produce a son to succeed Henry. Frustrated with his new wife, Henry began to look elsewhere for a queen who could give him the son he wanted and started plotting ways to get rid of Anne. In 1536, Henry finally found his opportunity. He brought Anne up on trumped-up charges of adultery, incest, and plotting against the king. She was found guilty 
and taken to the Tower of London. Anne paces back and forth in her cell, trying to ignore the screams of the commoners echoing through the hallways as they beg for an end to their torment. Anne has tried her own share of pleading. She has written so many letters to her husband, the king, that her fingers are stained black with ink. Quote, Try me, good king, but let me have a lawful trial, and let not my sworn enemies sit as my accusers and judges. Yes, let me receive an open trial, for my truth shall fear no open shame. Then shall you see, either mine innocency cleared, your suspicion and conscience satisfied, the ignominy and slander of the world stopped, or my guilt openly declared." End quote. Henry does not want to give her a trial. He knows she is innocent. Maybe that's why he doesn't respond. Or maybe Anne's letters never reach him at all. She knows nothing beyond her own little cell. She thinks about her young daughter, Elizabeth, how her red hair shines in the sunlight as she races down the palace corridors, how she likes to bury her face into the crook of Anne's arm when she's sleepy. She remembers the sound of Elizabeth's sweet little voice calling for Mama. She would give anything to hear her daughter's voice one last time. Now she hears nothing but the guards stomping up and down the halls and the cries of commoners begging for death. Her door opens. Perhaps Henry has changed his mind. The palace guards will escort her home and she'll sweep her little girl into her arms. Anne looks up. William Kingston, the constable of the tower, meets her gaze. His face grim. Anne's chest tightens. It's time. Her ladies-in-waiting escort her outside to the north side of the White Tower, where a scaffold awaits. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue the story. Anne Boleyn walks up the scaffold steps, her legs trembling beneath her gray damask gown. The executioner bows his head as she passes. She's heard from the guards that he is an expert swordsman from France. She wonders if he can truly chop off her head in one blow. But she cannot let him know she's afraid. She smiles at him and at the crowd, waiting to hear her final words. What should she say? Anne clears her throat and begins to speak her voice hoarse from disuse. Quote, Good Christian people, I am come hither to die. For according to the law and by the law, I am judged to die. And therefore, I will speak nothing against it. End quote. She cannot blame Henry. Not directly. Anne has to protect Elizabeth from her father's wrath. Quote, I am come hither to accuse no man nor to speak anything of that whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray, God save the king, and send him long to reign over you. For gentler nor more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord." End quote. <laughs> Utter tosh. 
but at least Elizabeth will be safe. What's left to say? The crowd is staring at Anne, waiting for her to beg for her forgiveness, but she cannot. She will not take the blame for something she did not do. She takes a deep breath, her voice growing stronger as she speaks. Quote, that if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all. And I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O oh Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. End quote. Anne looks out at the crowd again. Grown men have tears in their eyes. Her ladies-in-waiting weep openly. But she won't cry. She wants these witnesses to tell her daughter that she was brave, right up until her last breath. Anne kneels at the scaffold. One of her handmaidens ties a blindfold around her eyes. She mutters a single prayer, stumbling over the words. With the blindfold over her eyes, her other senses are heightened. She hears the crowd weeping as though she is already dead. She feels the wind nipping at her bare neck. Some tiny part of her still wonders if the king will take pity on her, if he will spare her in this final moment. But then she hears the executioner draw his sword. At least Henry afforded her the small mercy of death by sword instead of by axe. It will be quicker. The sword rises above her. It whistles through the air. Distantly, she thinks she hears her daughter calling her name. And then, she hears nothing at all. In an instant, it was over. Well, maybe not entirely over. Anne Boleyn's death was only the end of the first chapter of her legacy. Maybe it was the tragedy of her untimely death that drew people to her story. Certainly, after Anne's daughter Elizabeth ascended to the throne, the public began to see the disgraced queen as a martyr rather than a traitor. Maybe it was the thought of her knowingly walking to her death despite her innocence. Maybe it was the gruesome, barbaric nature of her execution. But whatever the reason, Anne Boleyn's ghost has been the most popular spectral sighting at the tower. Although her headless ghost was seen wandering around the executioner's block on a few occasions in the 17th and 18th centuries, the first notable appearance of her ghost wasn't until 1817 when a patrolling guardsman was said to have dropped dead from a heart attack after seeing Anne's ghost on a stairwell inside the White Tower. Whether Anne's ghost was the true cause of the guard's death or not, the story seemed to spark a lot of imaginations. A better documented Anne sighting came in 1864, where another guard patrolling the White Tower came across Anne's ghost in the courtyard. He charged the headless figure with his bayonet, but it went right through her spectral body, giving him a shock that caused him to fall unconscious. When the guard was found the next morning, he was court-martialed for sleeping on the job. He only managed to avoid a prison sentence when Major General J.D. Dundas backed up his story, saying that he had seen the whole incident, ghost and all, from his chambers overlooking the White Tower courtyard. 
But the most spectacular of all the Tower of London Anne Boleyn sightings comes from 1882. A captain of the guard noticed a light coming from an upper window of the Tower Chapel late one night, despite the fact that the chapel was locked and had been for several hours. Ugh. Unable to get inside himself, the guard climbed a ladder to investigate the light through an upper window. What the guard saw through that window, he simply couldn't explain. Walking down the aisle of the chapel was what looked like a wedding procession, but not just any wedding procession of this world. The lords and ladies that filled the room wore 16th century finery and flickered in and out of view in the ghostly light. They moved forward down the aisle, slowly, grandly, glittering in their unearthly splendor. But as shocking as the scene was, the real horror was yet to come. Bringing up the rear of this procession was the figure of a young woman wearing the most elaborate dress of them all. Although her face was turned away from him, the guard thought he recognized her. She looked exactly like the portraits of Anne Boleyn he had seen in his time at the tower. As she walked toward the altar at the front of the chapel, her face turned for just a moment toward the upper window. But where her face had once been was nothing but a dark void. At this sight, the ghostly light filling the chapel flickered and vanished, leaving the guard with nothing to look at but a dark, empty room. Although it's obvious that the place where Anne Boleyn spent her final days should also be the place where she spent her afterlife, Anne's ghost is reportedly remarkably well-traveled. Far from just being sighted at the Tower of London, her ghost has said to roam Hever Castle, Blickling Hall, Saul Church, and Marwell Hall, in addition to her final resting place. But the Tower of London is still Anne's most famous haunt. It even appears in a popular song from the 1930s, the darkly humorous, with her head tucked underneath her arm. In the Tower of London lodges life, the ghost of Anne Boleyn walks, they declare. For Anne Boleyn was once King Henry's wife, until he made the headsman bob her hair. If it was only Anne Boleyn's ghost that wandered its stony halls, the Tower of London would be considered a hotspot of paranormal activity. But Queen Anne's headless ghost is only one of the many terrors you can expect to see at England's most haunted castle. Anne wasn't the only royal who faced execution at the Tower of London. Anne's brother, George Boleyn, was also beheaded on trumped-up charges by King Henry VIII just a few days before Anne's own death. Anne's sister-in-law, Jane, lasted six more years in King Henry's entourage before she, too, was sent to the chopping block. But although these deaths were a tragedy for the Boleyn family, they were by no means the most gruesome ever witnessed at the tower. That dubious honor goes to Margaret de la Pole, Countess of Salisbury, who in 1541 was sentenced to death because her son denounced Henry VIII's rule over the Church of England. Even though Margaret had very little to do with her son's actions, he was a cardinal living in France at the time, and Henry wanted her death to serve as both punishment and warning to those who would oppose his rule. 
poor Margaret was walked to the same scaffolding where Anne Boleyn had met her fate five years earlier, in front of a crowd of 150 mourners and bloodthirsty onlookers. However, while Queen Anne had been afforded an expert swordsman to carry out her death, Margaret wasn't given a similar option. In fact, you could hardly do worse than the young man who was to carry out her execution. The whole operation was slapdash and amateurish, not befitting a noble of Margaret's station. When she was told to kneel, she refused, saying, quote, So should traitors do, and I am none. End quote. But her refusal to kneel didn't stop the executioner, who ordered two guards to hold her head to the chopping block while he readied his swing. However, Margaret struggling threw him off his aim, and instead of slicing off her head cleanly, the executioner hit her in the shoulder instead. Margaret jumped up, screaming as the blood from her wound gushed over her hair and dress. She tried to run, begging for help from the assembled crowd, but the only one that moved was the executioner, intent on finishing his job. Margaret couldn't outrun her death. The executioner hacked at her as she ran, hitting her sloppily a total of 11 times in the head and neck before finally striking her down. This brutal act created one of the most terrifying ghosts in the Tower of London. If you happen to walk the grounds outside the White Tower on May 27th, the anniversary of Margaret's death, you may see her bloody specter reliving the final agonizing moments of her death. The horror of seeing her many bloody wounds is nothing compared to the desperate screams or the eerie way she appears suddenly and vanishes into thin air. The headless ghosts at the Tower of London are so numerous, it can sometimes be hard to keep track. For example, Anne Boleyn isn't the only decapitated wife of Henry VIII said to roam the Tower's halls. His fifth wife, Catherine Howard, happened to be the first cousin of Anne Boleyn. At only 19 years old, Catherine met the same grisly fate as her cousin. In 1542, she was sent to the executioner's block on charges of adultery. After Catherine's alleged adultery was discovered by the king, he had her stripped of her title and sent to a convent to await her trial. Her lovers, Francis Derham and Thomas Culpepper, were immediately found guilty and sent to the tower for execution. When Catherine was officially charged with adultery, her sentence was similarly dire. However, King Henry made sure there was one last cruel twist to her fate. Tradition held that while being transported by boat to the Tower of London, prisoners would pass under the London Bridge and enter through the Traitor's Gate to their final destination. The heads of Derham and Culpepper were placed on spikes protruding from the London Bridge in clear view of any boats passing underneath. Catherine's barge was no exception. As she was rowed to her death, she was watched by the unseeing eyes of her former lovers. Crows picked at their rotting flesh. After that grisly sight, Catherine spent her final hours in the Tower of London, 
fully aware that her lovers had been sent to their deaths, and she was next. The situation was hopeless. Without the king's favor, there was no way she'd ever leave the tower alive. But she was determined not to go down easy. With little else to do in her room at the tower, Catherine spent every precious minute plotting her escape. Then, one day, she got her chance. She managed to slip out of her cell, past an inattentive guard. She barreled down the hallway, running for her life. But it wasn't long before someone spotted the queen's mad dash for freedom. Catherine kept running, adrenaline and the desperate need to survive drowning out all sense of reason. She screamed at the top of her lungs for help, for mercy, for someone to save her as she struggled to evade the guards. But no help came. The guards quickly caught up to Catherine and subdued her. They dragged the terrified teenager back to her cell and executed her the next day. The raw fear of Catherine's desperate escape still lingers in the tower's walls. Visitors say that her final dash to freedom can still be seen and heard as an eerie specter barrels down the hall, still screaming for help that will never arrive. Sometimes, as she runs down the hall, onlookers can see that her head is already missing. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. Now, our story continues. The final headless ghost we'll discuss today is that of Lady Jane Grey. After Henry VIII's death, he was succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. As one would expect, a nine-year-old wasn't an effective ruler, and his illnesses made his reign even more turbulent. Edward died at age 15 and named his cousin Lady Jane Grey as his heir, cutting off his older half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, entirely. The royal snub was likely due to Edward and Jane's shared Protestant affiliation, as eldest sister Mary was Roman Catholic. As flattered as she was to be chosen to rule England, Jane really had no say in the matter. She was only 16 and had been singled out by her cousin by luck and circumstance, rather than by the more usual line of succession. All her life, she never expected to be queen. And now, suddenly, the pressure of ruling a country was thrust into her lap. But the pressure didn't last long. Lady Jane Grey was only queen for nine days before she was deposed and ultimately beheaded by Henry VIII's eldest daughter, Mary. This act of violence would be sadly emblematic of Mary's reign, leading to her being called Bloody Mary. Poor Jane had never truly controlled her fate. She had done nothing wrong except take the throne from her dying cousin. And for that, both she and her husband were scheduled to be executed. By the time Jane made her way to her cell at the London Tower, it was far from the splendor of its early days as a nobleman's castle and stronghold. Even by Jane's time, the London Tower was old, almost 500 years old, in fact. It was a dark, foreboding place, 
one whose halls had soaked in blood, in unimaginable torment for hundreds of years. The smell of old stone and mildew hung over the smell of something else, something indescribable. Maybe it was the stench of fear of the unlucky prisoners that came before her that still lingered in the walls of Jane's cell. Wind whistled through the cracks in the walls, amplified by echoing stone hallways into a desperate wail. Even Jane's own sobs seemed to bend and twist in the acoustics of the structure. But the worst sound of all was the creaking of the wheels from far down the hallway. Long before Jane saw what made the horrible noise, she knew deep down what it must be. It was a cart, the type used to move bodies from the chopping block to their final resting place. She knew instinctively the identity of the body in the cart outside her room. She could not bear the thought, and yet she could not look away. Through the window in the door of her cell, she could see the executioner's cart and a bloody corpse, its head detached, the head of her husband, Guilford Dudley. That's when Jane heard screaming, wild animal screaming. It was only when the cart passed by that she realized the screaming was coming from her own mouth. If you visit the Tower of London today, you'll find a very different tower to the one where Jane spent her final hours. It's still old, to be sure, but the new additions of information booths and tourist kiosks stand out against the ancient stone. Unfortunately, since the tower closes at 4.30 p.m., the average tourist isn't likely to see the lonely, headless figure of Lady Jane Grey walking the lawn glowing white, still in her bloody dress. But if you visit the cell where her husband Guilford Dudley was kept, you may still hear the faint sound of him weeping over the babble of curious onlookers, still mourning the loss of his beloved Jane. It was said that his final act was to etch the word Jane into the walls of his prison cell. Even as he was about to die, Jane was the only thing on his mind. Although the Tower of London is most famous for being host to hundreds of tortures and executions, other grisly deaths have occurred throughout its nearly 1,000-year history. The Tower has seen its fair share of mysterious disappearances, illnesses, accidents, and even murder. Henry VI is perhaps most famous for the Shakespeare play, or rather plays, that bear his name, but was also one of the many who spent his final hours in the Tower of London. As he had assumed the throne before his first birthday, Henry's life was filled with constant struggles over his ability as a ruler. He had also inherited a war over the succession of the French throne, and the stress of ruling a kingdom at war caused him to have a mental breakdown at the age of 32. Edward of York seized the opportunity caused by Henry's mental instability and took the throne, crowning himself Edward IV. Henry, now deposed, was imprisoned in the Tower of London from 1465 until 1470, 
when he was reinstated as king, only to be deposed by Edward of York yet again, and soon after, he died in the tower. While early reports of the time claim Henry died of a broken heart, the truth may be much more sinister. When Henry's body was exhumed in 1789 during restoration work at the chapel where he was buried, evidence of blood and damage to his skull suggested his death may have been a violent one after all. If that was the case, the assassination would likely have been ordered by Edward IV himself. Many people through the years believed in this assassination theory, including apparently William Shakespeare. I won't spoil the ending of Henry VI, but it certainly isn't one of Shakespeare's comedies. Today, Henry's ghost can be seen pacing the floor of the room where he died, with his specter suddenly evaporating at the stroke of midnight. But the death of King Henry VI isn't the only mysterious death in the Tower of London. In fact, the most mysterious of all may also be the most tragic. Edward IV ruled for a few more years after Henry VI's imprisonment, but fell ill and died, leaving the kingdom to his 12-year-old son, Edward V. The elder King Edward appointed his brother, Richard III, to serve as Lord Protector and take care of the kingdom until Edward V was old enough to rule on his own. But things didn't go according to plan. Edward IV's body was barely cold before Richard started to seize power for himself. Despite his power as Lord Protector, he was greedy and jealous of the preteen he was supposed to serve and protect. Before the young Edward could be officially crowned king, Richard had his father's marriage deemed invalid, delegitimizing Edward's right to rule. Edward and his little brother were then put in the Tower of London, supposedly for their own safety, in August of 1483. The princes were never seen alive again. Whether the boys were outright murdered, left to starve, or managed to escape has never been discovered. However, despite some conspiracy theories, the last one seems unlikely. There have, on the other hand, been sightings of small ghostly figures haunting the tower. The princes have been spotted playing on the battlements, dressed in white nightshirts, stained with blood. Visitors to the tower have also reported the laughter of children echoing throughout the halls, seemingly emanating from the walls themselves. We may never know what truly happened to the princes of the tower, but at least they seem to keep each other company in the afterlife. One of the most unusual things about the ghosts of the Tower of London is that not all of them are human. Over the years, the tower has been home to many different types of exotic animals, thanks to the royal menagerie. The menagerie originated in around 1235, when Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II presented King Henry III with three leopards. With nowhere else safe to keep them, the tower seemed like a reasonable enough place to keep the exotic pets. After the addition of leopards to the tower, the menagerie quickly expanded to include polar bears, elephants, lions, lynxes, jackals, hyenas, and other animals that were completely foreign to the Londoners who were allowed to visit. 
By the 18th century, the menagerie was open to the public, costing three halfpence, or a small cat or dog to be fed to the lions. However, by 1830, the menagerie had become completely unmanageable by the keepers at the tower. Most of the animals were rehomed at the London Zoo, and their enclosures were demolished. However, according to some reports, some of the animals never truly left. In 1815, a sentry posted to guard the crown jewels was going about his business as usual when he heard a strange noise he couldn't quite place. It sounded like a low rumble. Maybe the sound of a carriage outside had been distorted by the echoing off of the building stone. Still, the sentry knew that he couldn't risk a theft of one of the most priceless jewels held in the tower and moved to the door to investigate. As he reached the door, he saw a shadow pass through the doorway of the jewel room. He paused for a moment. If this was a possible thief, he would have to be absolutely massive to cast such a long shadow. But the sentry had the element of surprise. He readied his bayonet and turned the corner to see an adult grizzly bear towering over him as it stood on its hind legs and bellowing out a warning. The huge bear dropped to all fours, its weight shaking the ground beneath the sentry's feet. And it began to charge the man at an unimaginable speed. It was too late to run. The sentry knew if he turned, he would be overtaken in seconds. So he did the only thing he could, raise his bayonet and hope to strike. The bear closed the distance in mere moments. It felt like an eternity. Then, when the sentry was close enough to feel the grizzly's hot breath on his face and look deep into his cold black eyes, he plunged the bayonet into the beast's skull. To his shock and horror, nothing happened. The bayonet sliced through the bear as if it were thin air. And at the touch of his bayonet, the bear vanished without a trace. When the sentry's relief guard arrived later that evening, he found his compatriot was a gibbering wreck. He could only mumble incoherently about a giant bear, giggling and screaming at seemingly random intervals. There was no evidence of any bear having been at the jewel house. In short, the sentry had gone crazy. He was relieved of duty and sent home, where he died a day later. The shock of seeing a bear appear and disappear before his eyes was seemingly too much for him to handle. We've discussed many of the ghosts, spirits, and specters that haunt the halls of the Tower of London, but there have been so many others reported over the last millennium that it would be impossible for me to discuss them all. However, I want to leave you with not a ghost story, but a legend. If you've ever visited the Tower of London, you may have seen the many ravens that roost in its highest nooks and crannies. They're fairly friendly to visitors, and locals treat the birds with respect and a healthy dose of superstition. There's even an official job of Raven Master, given to an individual tasked with the care and feeding of the birds. 
So why is there such a fuss about these birds, who at most other historical buildings would be ignored at best, or treated as pests at worst? Well, there's a legend that states that if the ravens were ever to leave the tower, Britain would fall, and the crown with it. Some even go as far as to say that if the ravens left, so would the tower's ghosts, free to wreak havoc all throughout London. So perhaps it's for the best that the ravens stay in place. And if you ever visit the Tower of London, make sure to thank the ravens. Their watchful eyes may be the only thing separating you from an encounter with something from beyond the grave. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every other Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Jordan Lyric. I'm Greg Paulson.